Scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. What we've been looking at over the last few weeks is um, the, the, this, this whole ministry of reconciliation starts with um, our reconciliation to God, this, what we've called the vertical reconciliation. This is the core or the heart of the ministry, ministry of reconciliation, this reuniting of human beings, sinners though they may be, with the God who made them. The ministry of reconciliation is very wide-ranging, has many facets, many arenas where reconciliation should occur. What we're trying to do is look at the heart of this whole thing, like where it starts, what is the core of it, um, and it's this, this idea that even though the ministry of reconciliation is very wide-ranging and has, thanks Nick, has a, a social dimension, a psychological internal dimension, and it, an ecological dimension, uh, it, it all hangs, all of those facets hang on the vertical reconciliation of people to God, sinners to God. And if we're called to that, then we'd better have a clear, uh, scripturally informed idea of what this vertical reconciliation entails. What's involved in a sinner's reconciliation to God? So this is the third lesson in our little mini-series on the heart of the ministry of reconciliation. And today we want to focus uh, particularly on uh, how, how individual sinners uh, are reconciled to God. And there appears to be in 2 Corinthians 5, in the, if you look at the last verse of this text we've been reading over the last few weeks, um, a connection between reconciliation and righteousness. Two important biblical words that we're going to explore a little bit uh, for a few minutes. Look what Paul says at the end of this paragraph. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In particular, there appears to be something about our becoming the righteousness of God. That's what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But first of all, I want you to notice the connection here. He's been talking about this reconciliation. Three or four times in the preceding verses, he says, we are reconciled, or God in Christ reconciled, or we're involved in a ministry of reconciliation. It's, it's, a, it's the predominant word or theme of this paragraph. And then all of a sudden in verse 21, he throws in this other R word, righteousness. That we somehow in Christ become the righteousness of God. Suggesting that there's a strong connection, a link between reconciliation on the one hand, whatever that might mean, and righteousness on the other Whatever that, we should understand that to mean from a biblically informed uh, perspective. There's ser- the, and if you look at the, the full phrase here in verse 21, he says that we might, you and I, Christians, might become the righteousness of God. And so this looks like it's some kind of necessary precondition to our becoming ministers of reconciliation. We can't really talk about our being ministers of reconciliation without also talking about becoming the righteousness of God. 
I want to explore that connection this morning. If we're going to talk about what is involved in our vertical reconciliation to God, which is the heart of this ministry, this more wide-ranging, pervasive ministry of reconciliation, then what's involved in our becoming the righteousness of God? What's the link between righteousness and reconciliation? And how does that inform um, what it means to be ministers of reconciliation? I want to suggest two things this morning that become, just straight out of the text, as, as I read it anyway, that, that becoming the righteousness of God, um, two things that we have to appreciate or, or understand or grasp if we are going to become the righteousness of God, which is what verse 21 says God is trying to do with us so that we might be enabled to be ministers of reconciliation. The first of these, very simple, straight out of the text, is we've got to grasp what righteousness is. What's righteousness? Um, I believe Daniel made a point in a Bible class either Wednesday or last Sunday or sometime recently that really resonated with me if you, because there, there's a kind of tendency uh, that we have. I don't know how long it's been around. Um, I, I have a feeling it's kind of a, a feature of, of modern Western evangelicalism which tends to be um, spiritualize everything to the point that it doesn't become very relevant outside of church. It's just when did you get saved? You got God in your back pocket. You still keep living your same narrative. Um, it's very individual, you know, I'm glad I did the God thing, now that's good, I can move on and do whatever else I did and live just like the pagan next door, you know. That, that's a very non-biblical kind of concept. Righteousness in the Bible, there's a, a, a word and a family of words, right, righteous, righteousness, and as we'll see, just, justice, justification are all from the same biblical words. And they're much more broad in their biblical usage than we may be accustomed to think. So I want to look, let's explore that. I ask you to open your mind for a minute and uh, maybe loosen it up a bit because I think a lot of times when we hear the word righteous or righteousness, well, well you tell me, what do we think? Where does your mind go when you hear, we need to be righteous? What else? What kind, what is it, what, what realm does it work in mostly? Is it kind of moral pretty much? It's about don't do those bad things, those, those nasty, dirty things. Righteousness includes that, but it goes way beyond that. Um, it, it's, and let's, let's to do this, uh, explore this connection, which I believe is very fundamental, between righteousness and reconciliation. We can't understand the one without the other, and that's where the vertical part of our, our righteousness comes in. So there's this, this really important link between righteousness, righteousness and reconciliation that you see right here in the text of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, Notice all the reconcile language up top. And then down in verse 21, we are to become the righteousness of God. So there's some kind of connection between righteousness and reconciliation. Paul makes the same sort of restatement uh, and, and you know, sort of toggling between the two as if they're seamless over in Romans chapter 5, another one of his letters to a different church. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and by the way, in the Greek, that's the word righteous. I hate it that English does this sometimes. We, same thing with faith and believe. Same Greek word family. Pistis is faith. Pistuo is believe. If you were a New Testament Greek reader or hearer, speaker, you would go, oh, that's just, I, I faithed that. But we can't say I faithed it because we don't have a verb. So it changes. And we lose the, um, the kind of connection that has. Often in our English Bibles, not always, but often, you'll see words like just, justify, justification, exact word in the Greek as the word, as the word family of righteous. Righteousness, made right, so on. All right, that's the case here. 
So when Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by, by faith, you might as well say made righteous or declared righteous as the NET version does say. It, it, it's the family of words. It, it's the word uh, decay, dikaios, a family of words that, that are used all over the, the New Testament. Look what he says in verse 11, though. Same context. He's not talking about something different. Same paragraph, he says, much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So in Paul's mind, in his mental framework, reconciliation and righteousness, justification, they go together. I don't know if they're two sides of the same coin or just different metaphorical, you know, conceptual ways of, of approaching the same topic, but there is an intimate and extricable connection between righteousness and reconciliation. And now we're going to look at why that is the case. It makes total sense, actually, in light of the biblical usage of the family of words for righteousness, right, righteous, righteously. We need a, a biblically, uh, and by that I mean a kind of fuller, more fully orbed uh, view of what that word means, both as Paul uses it and the way the, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testaments use it, which are, of course, informing Paul's theology very much. The term is much broader and pervasive in its application and fuller in its meaning than just don't say these five bad words and do these seven bad activities. Now go knock yourselves out. Right? Um, not trying to belittle moral holiness. I'm just saying that we're, we're kind of shaving down the word to something that's much more, much less uh, broad and expansive than it is that it means in its biblical Context. So what does it mean? Well, righteousness basically relates to the total state of right relations. Everything's right with the world. It's, it's about as broad a word in the good side of things as you could have. It's a, it's a lot like conceptually, it functions a lot like the Hebrew word for shalom, which doesn't just mean absence of war, peace. It does mean that because war is bad. People get killed and hurt. Everything gets damaged and destroyed and messed up. But shalom is like everything is thriving. You are internally, you're whole, your relationship with your friends and loved ones is, is, is functioning. It's not dysfunctional. It's, it's, you're thriving that way. Your relationship with the environment, with, with nature, with your work, everything is how it was meant to be. It is all right. And so righteousness is a lot like that. Um, and it's very connected to the covenant that God made with his people. So I want to give you a couple of verses that I think show this. Let's go back to Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Pentateuch, which is basically a, a restating of, of the law, the Torah, the instruction of Yahweh for his people before they go into the land of promise. They're at the plains of Moab. They're about to go in. Of course, Moses isn't allowed to go in, but he is here kind of reiterating in these sermons what God, what his covenant's about, what he wants his people to be like, and so on. Notice this in verse 24 and 25 of Deuteronomy 6. It says, The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all these commandments. Now, God's covenant gives all these statutes and rules and commandments and instruction for a reason. But it's not just an empty rote, I want you to do good things so I don't have to like flip a switch and send you to hell. Like I'm up here just twitching, ready to send you to hell. Right? That, that's really not an accurate picture. That doesn't mean there are any rules. But the rules are like traffic laws. 
Did, did somebody just sort of like go, you know what? I'm going to frustrate these people and put a 30 mile an hour speed limit on this road. Some of you hot rodders think that's the case. But it's really so we don't kill each other, right? So the little kid going across to get his ball or his tricycle doesn't have to worry about, you know, uh, you know somebody with a, a, a four-barrel carb and all that. Oh, well, I don't even know how to talk about this stuff. But <laughs> glass packs and the whole bit, you know, running over them because they couldn't hear them. There's rules for, because we're supposed to live. Look at this. For our good, that he might preserve it. He wants to give us life. It's like the passage Michael quoted from John 10. Jesus came not just to give us life, but to give us life abundant, full living and thriving. That's what God's covenant was for when he made this covenant between himself and Israel. Deuteronomy 7, for you are a people, verse 6, you are a people, Israel, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What he's trying to do is make a covenant with humanity through Israel initially so that humans can really be and do and live as God designed them, his image bearers, to, to be and do and live. And he wants the best for us. Real living, not making a living, making a life. All right? It's involved, making a living is part of that, but it's not the whole, you can't reduce yourself to just your career and your achievements and your money. Uh, that's a, a very shallow uh, hollow view of what it means to be a human being. We gotta observe the rules, the, the guidelines, because they are, they are, as Psalm 119 says, they're like gold, they're like honey, they're like milk. These aren't to hurt us. God's not a killjoy. He's a loving father who knows we need guidance. And that's what he's trying to do. That's what righteousness is. It's what it looks like when we're all doing what God, who knows better than us, you know, how he instructs us to live everything the world us each other inside ourselves and so on and so that's what the, the reason for his torah his law his instruction was designed to lead them to life and thriving one more passage deuteronomy 30 near the end of this this reiteration of the law right before they go into the promised land you're going in there what kind of people are you going to be i want you to be holy like i am here's what i have in mind for you you have a choice to make basically if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, notice it, then you shall live and multiply. What does that remind you of? Creation. Creation. The whole reason Adam and Eve, humanity, were put on earth. To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth have dominion, this, this, this stewardship, this uh, blessing it. Uh, and, and he's reminding them of that here. You will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land. And then he says in verse 19, therefore choose life. You really want to live or just survive? Choose to thrive. Choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. You're not just talking about going to heaven here. Length of days. Holistically being the kind of people in the kind of world that he wants you to be. That's righteousness. It's that broad. Let me give you one more example. I just want to make sure we, we get this. The more you study this, the more you'll see it. It's the case with some of the Hebrew words that are sometimes translated righteousness and with the main family of Greek words that are uh, translated righteousness that you'll see words like justice as the translation. 
Uh, Hebrews 11, Mike uh, read this one earlier in his Lord's Supper talk, 33. It's talking about all these people of faith who, who sort of exemplified for us what it means to be faithful, uh, to seek that heavenly city, and so on. And he says, these people through faith, Hebrews 11, 33, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice. Think of all the prophets who emphasize social justice. Don't cheat the widow. Treat the foreigner in your midst well. You were once immigrants. Over and over and over. It's one of the main things the prophets emphasize is justice. Micah 6. One thing the Lord's asked of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your Lord. Well, guess what? In Hebrews 11, 33, where it says the prophets enforce justice, the New American Standard that Mike read said they performed acts of righteousness. You see the point? It isn't just saying they, they never said a curse word. They never did. They talked a whole lot. You read it. Jeremiah's long. Isaiah, they never said a curse word. It's, not, he's, it's something way bigger than that. Don't say curse word. But still, the point is, righteousness is this big topic of the way God designed us and the world to, to function. Everything is right. And Israel was given this, but they weren't the ultimate and only point, they were to be a light to the nations. Like, you remember our memory verse from a few weeks ago? I will make you, Isaiah 49, 6, Israel, he says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All right. But what was Israel supposed to do when in their many, many failures to keep God's Torah, to keep his standards, to live by his ways, they abdicated their role. They snuffed out the very light they were supposed to be and lived as much like the darkness around them as that darkness. What were they to do? What were the Gentiles, their Gentile contemporaries, supposed to do who were supposed to be looking to them for guidance? What are we supposed to do when we fail to keep God's covenant? When we live unrighteously, we contribute to the dysfunction and disruption and destruction spiritually, ecologically, physically, economically, you know, in terms of church unity, morally, ethically, whatever it is. Let's think of that as, in, in as fully orbed a fashion as the, word, the biblical word righteousness uh, should, should uh, connote for us. What are we to do? Paul talks about this dilemma in Romans chapter 3. When he says, after talking about the way the pagans have lived through history, and then the Jews, he quickly pivots and says, hey, not so fast, you're no better. Even though you had the law, you didn't live by it. What then, Romans 3, 9, are, the Jew, are we Jews any better off, he asks? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all humans, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, are all under sin, as it is written. He quotes from a psalm here. None is righteous. There's our word. No, not one. And then in verse 19, to those who are you know, taking maybe a little too much comfort in the fact that they were the keepers and the custodians of the scriptures, of God's law, our Old Testaments. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of, law, of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Justified, by the, word, by the way, is made righteous, again. Same thing in Greek. You wouldn't, it, it, we see justified, we go, that's a different word. It's not a different word in the original at all. 
Same family of words, different cognate, different ending because different part of speech, but the same family of words. So righteousness and reconciliation, I think you can see, have a lot to do with one another since righteousness is the original state where everything was right. It gets out of whack because God's main custodians of the world, humanity, even the nation of Israel that he chose through whom to work to redeem the rest of humanity, the nations, the Gentiles, have all abdicated our roles. We've become unrighteous. And so this is the reason Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, after talking about a ministry of reconciliation and reminding us that that's our calling, he says, we have to become righteousness for that to happen. Because that's what it is. That's what reconciliation is trying to do, is get us back to the state where everything is right. So secondly then, we've got to grasp how righteousness is acquired. Not only what it is biblically, this big, broad sense of it, but if we're to become that, how, how do we attain that? How is it acquired? And the short answer is by Jesus Christ taking my sins and your sins and the sins of the world upon himself. Never committed a sin. He who knew, knew no sin. He was made to be sin, verse 21 says, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And basically what this is saying is, Jesus took my sins upon himself and conferred upon me his righteousness. He stands before God with a perfect record. Everything he did and thought and said, when he, the way he lived morally and individually, but the way he taught the leaders to live and the way he interacted with the world around him and the people around him, everything about that was the way God intended. It was righteousness. That's the record, the, the, the pedigree, the, the resume that he, he stands before the holy and almighty God with. We stand there as a mess. And Jesus says, we're going to swap records. We're going to swap resumes. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to, so identified as Jesus with sin, the word, the word here is, is a, a verb of, of, of being, of to be, right? He became sin. It's not like he just took your sins and put them in a backpack. He becomes your sin on the cross. So that in that, that, cosmic, mysterious transaction, the almighty, holy creator, God, sees sin justly taken care of. It's canceled out by what Jesus did. And he gives you, in the place of that, his righteous record. That's amazing. Millennia ago, Irenaeus <coughs> said this, God became what we are to make us what he is. And from the perspective of a, of a human sinner, myself and yourself, that we have to appreciate that this was completely, a, a, a completely out of the blue development. This is a windfall, right? It's not because we minded our P's and Q's and we got up early and went to bed early and we took our vitamins and we ate our vegetables and, you know, we did everything right. No, no, no. We walked out one day and there's just riches everywhere on the ground stacking up. This is a windfall. Out of the blue. 
So after Paul's dire assessment of the human condition that we read from a minute ago in Romans chapter 3, you know, sinners who stand before God's law and God's holiness condemned, who've lived unrighteously. His letter, Paul's does, takes a dramatic turn toward the positive, toward hope. Look what he says as we continue that text. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You're not going to keep the law perfectly. All the law does is condemn you. It just shows you your sin. But there's more to the story. This is why Christianity isn't just yet another world religion that just has a bunch of rules to follow. It's got rules. But all all world religions have that. And most of them are very similar. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. You know, everybody says, oh, we don't believe in murder. Our killing wasn't murder. Every religion does that. Christianity has the Crusades, just like, you know, some branches of Islam had 9-11. And, and both sides say that's not the real thing, though. That's the distortion. About every religion has done that. And they're all teaching many of the same ethical. That's not identical, but it's close. That's not the real distinctive mark of Christianity. The distinctive mark is that though we could not and did not keep the law, though we've become unrighteous, this God becomes one of us to die for us in our place to make us righteous at great cost to himself. That's unique. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it and their prophecies and such. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet he says they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation and atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want you to notice all the, the righteousness language here. That's all this paragraph is just loaded with. The book of Romans is, right? Righteousness, righteousness, justified, made righteous. Again, in the Greek, it's the DK word, family. Just and justifier, same, same word. Something else I want you to notice is that Paul calls this forgiveness, our being justified or made righteous, a sheer gift. Verse 24. We are justified by His grace as a gift. God gives us something we did not deserve, nor had any right to expect. You walk out on the, in the field, and there's just fruit laying everywhere. Your orchards, for all your labor, are bare, blighted, bug-infested, and yet there they are, buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets. You did nothing. a gift. Now, somebody says, don't, don't we have to accept his gift? Of course we do. And we need to accept his gift in the ways the New Testament very simply prescribes. Faith, repentance, baptism. But those are really equivalent to, and, and, and to the extent that, that our, our friends and neighbors don't understand that, we should take the time to explain that. But let me say this. Those are equivalent Those acts of obedience, if you will, those acts of of obediently accepting the way that we open the present, those are kind of, to mix metaphors, uh, uh, 
about like a starving person accepting a plate of food. They gotta eat it, right? Doesn't matter how much food somebody brings into the starving person, they have to get the fork and the plate and actually say thank you and eat it. But the only thing we bring to the table is sheer need. The fact that we know how to take a, accept a plate with our hands and use a fork is not really the big storyline. The one who deserved to be condemned and, and cast out, you and me, is instead pardoned and welcomed to the table of our Lord. And those are the ways the Bible often talks about the, how the order of things goes. Think of uh, Israel. They're given the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus where? Who remembers? 20. The Decalogue. One of the most famous passages, maybe the most famous Rivaling John 3.16 probably. People don't know all the details, but they know the Ten Commandments is in there somewhere. Probably can rattle off four or five of them. I mean, it's a culture war thing in Alabama. It was a few years ago. right? The Ten Commandments. Before he gives them any commandments, what does he say in Exodus 19? A few verses before. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. They haven't followed a commandment yet because they don't have them yet. The, 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 the calling to live correctly and the instructions to, you know, to, that enable them to do so follows the gift over and over and over in the Bible. So we don't really have much right to go, yeah, the gift's great. Now let's talk about how, what, what we do. You can never afford to forget that we are all people who are gifted by God. Paul says it. Try keeping the law. You think you're going to do it better than Paul? It just shows you your sin. He says. It's codified forever in the book of Romans. But God did justify us. He did pardon us. He did make us righteous by an act of sheer gift-giving. And despite those kind of descriptions of how human beings acquire righteousness, we often talk as if our forgiveness and salvation are more of a 50-50 transaction. It looks more like American capitalism than it does the theology of Paul or Jesus Christ. Sure, God reaches out to us, but, but we, all, we, saw, we also have a part to play. We, we sort of meet in the middle. I actually heard sermons that said that. We meet in the middle. God brings His grace to the table, we bring our good deeds, and then we can do business. And I, I want you to understand, we're going to talk about this next week, Lord willing. God's gift of righteous, righteousness is not only intended to redeem us, it's also supposed to reform us. His grace doesn't just save us, it shapes us. So there is a calling. We're, giving a, we're given a ministry of reconciliation. That's the whole reason we're preaching about this. We're to be ministers. We're to serve other people. We're to convey this idea and these truths and these actions that, that, that reconcile where there is alienation and, and uh, disruption and conflict. We're to bring the peace of Christ, the reconciliation of the gospel into that. that. That involves a lot of doing and obeying, doesn't it? That doesn't mean it's a 50-50 matter of how we get righteousness. We make a huge mistake in our emphasis. 
Think about the relative weight of God's grace versus our obedience in attaining righteousness. I mean, sometimes to hear us talk about it, you know, about how somebody gets saved or is made righteous, you would think the main storyline, the main takeaway, the kind of headline, if it's a, a news article on your phone or on, on TV at night or in your newspaper, the main headline is what we do, as if that's the main variable. It, it reminds me of uh, this college basketball season. Maybe you've got, heard of a guy named Michael Jordan, some of you. There's a Carolina uniform under those under that Bulls uniform, he always wore it every time, um, at least the shorts. Can you imagine scoring 69 points in one game? This is his career high, March 28, 1990, scored 69 points. I had a brief basketball career in junior high, 7th, 8th, ninth grade. I don't think I scored 69 points in my entire career. So, you know, he, averaged, he averaged 0.2 points. I mean, he's not just slinging it up and not looking at 62% from the field. He's also one of the most, if not the most efficient um, players in, in basketball history in terms of production per minute. You know, a lot of people score 69 points if, they're, if they shoot 5 billion times. The team loses, you know, 70 to 69. They won this game. And that's a remarkable thing. If you know anything about basketball, that's just a, if somebody scores 20 points, you're like, what a game, player of the game. 69 points in one game. Um... There was another player on the court, his teammate, Stacy King, pictured right there, number 21, at that point in time. Stacy King in that same game scored one point. Count it, one. And later, he, I think, humorously recollected uh, that game, spoke to it, and he said this, I'll always remember this night as the night Michael and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> And to me, that's often how we treat the grace, the gift of God in our salvation. Yeah, 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 whatever. Okay, but you got to be baptized. You got to do these things after that, too. Yeah, you do. You got to do all the stuff the Lord says. And, and another thing is, you're not going to do all of it. If Paul's right, we can mix it up all day long, but whether you can't, maybe I shouldn't say you can't, I should say you won't. Either, what's it matter? A divinely inspired writer saying, by the end of your life, you will not have done that. You have a record of disobedience. You have a record of unrighteousness. But the story isn't over, and that's why this is good news. Because God has scored, honestly, he scored all 69. And he, said, he just kind of says, you want to still come on the court? That's fine with me. I'll throw you the ball every now and then. You can guard somebody. You know, I have horrible analogies, but you get the point. Now, of course, we have responsibilities that accompany our being made righteous in Christ. Be ye holy, for I'm holy. You know, you're, you're ministers of reconciliation. Um, Paul will say in Romans 6, Are you ignorant that all of us who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ? We don't keep living the old way. That person is dead. We've been raised to walk in newness of life, just as Christ was raised from the dead when we come up out of the waters of baptism. That's the analogy there. We are raised from the sinful way of living. Of course we're, we're to, be, to do our best to live in a way that comports with God's ideal of righteousness pervading the land, everything made right. We're to be ministers of reconciliation. God in Christ is making the whole world right again. He is faithful to his covenant, though we be unfaithful. 
He does not abandon us, just like he didn't abandon Israel in their darkness and death. He taught them some lessons. Lamentation 3, remember? They had to sit there and wait on it. He let them express the pain. But he, was, he knew what he was doing. He says, let, let a man, this is from Revelation, uh, Lamentation 3, it is good for a man, man if he sits alone in silence. Let him bear the torment of his captors. Like, you, you need this. It also says in the very next verse, after the one Daniel referred in the class, that God does not afflict us willingly. And the word willingly there is the word in the Hebrew that has to do with from the heart. So when, when, when God's providence isn't, isn't making sense, and maybe he's disciplining us, we know he does that. There's time and chance as well, but a lot of times he's, he's using the way the world works in some mysterious way, divine way, to shape us, to push back maybe on tendencies we have that aren't good, that aren't healthy, that aren't leading toward real life and thriving and righteousness, but something else. Remember that he's not doing it because he's a capricious, sinister, schoolmarm. He's not doing it from the heart. In a sense, he's doing it from his head. He's doing it because we need it. Because ultimately, God is reconciling all things to himself. And that begins with you and me. It begins with us. It begins with us as a church family. And next week, we're going to ask ourselves how we, the vertically reconciled, can become, in, in view of all these things we've been talking about, can become more avid, more adept reconcilers. How can we go from that heart of it out? All right? starts with us, but it, it shouldn't stop there. Thank you for your attention. Um, if there's anyone here today who would like to come to Jesus, we, we have, uh, you know, we don't have all the answers. Uh, we're, we're, we're people who are in progress ourselves and works in progress who, who have our own struggles. And, um, but we do believe that Jesus has all the answers, and we believe his word does. And so if you want to sit down with us and talk about that, well, we would love to try to help. Maybe you'll help us, too, in the process. Set up a Bible study, pray with you. If there's a person here who has been thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a Christian, and, and you do believe in him and are willing to repent of your sins and just basically turn your life in the direction of following him, that's what that word means. And to accept baptism for the remission of your sins, you will be raised to be a new creature, a new creation. We have a baptistry here. We can do that too. So whatever your needs are, let us know as we all together stand and sing.